Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City, and thank you for joining us. I've been looking forward to tonight's conversation on the theme, Art and the Face of War. Uh, we'll be focusing on two extraordinary and influential artists, Spanish painter and printmaker Francisco de Goya and Russian writer Leo Tolstoy. Although separated by time and space, the two created incomparable masterworks centered on the tragic events of the more than decade-long Napoleonic Wars in the early 19th century. Our guest tonight will help us see that momentous period of human struggle and suffering through Goya's shocking collection of prints called Disasters of War and Tolstoy's novel War and Peace. We'll explore not only the original works, but also film and operatic interpretations, and we'll learn about the critical work of conservationists in the preservation of delicate artworks as the centuries take their toll. I'd like to introduce my guests for this first segment. Joyce Sai is just next to me, and she's the chief curator of the University of Iowa Stanley Museum of Art, also associate professor of practice at the University of Iowa School of Art and Art History. Thank you for being here, Joyce. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Next to her is Anna Barker, a visiting assistant professor in the University of Iowa Department of Asian and Slavic Languages and Literatures. Hi, Annie. Thank you. Thank you. And at the far end, <laughs> we have Denise Filios, who is the Associate Professor in Spanish, and she's also the Chair of the University of Iowa Department of Spanish and Portuguese. Thanks for being here, Denise. Thank you, Joe. Mm -hmm. Really great group to talk about, about these things and to kick off this discussion. Um, let me turn to you first, Joyce, and ask you to explain why Goya and Tolstoy are connected, not only in this particular discussion, but also in some other events that are happening and exhibitions around town. So um, I was approached by Anna Barker, sitting here, and Luis Matin Estudio, who's in Spain right now, doing significant research on Goya, um, I think a year or two back, um, with this idea of linking our remarkable Goya prints with uh, Leo Tolstoy's um, War and Peace. This year marks the 150th anniversary of War and Peace. Um, and it's also, you know, significant for the Stanley Museum of Art as well. To this year is the 50th anniversary. Um, and we also just broke ground. Um, if you look at the space right next to the library, it's kind of dug up um, because we're anticipating a new space for uh, our amazing collection. Part of our collection includes two first edition um, vo bound volumes of uh, Goya's um, Disasters of War. And it's really unusual to have two, I mean, two complete volumes to begin with. It's even more unusual to have two first edition uh, volumes. And when you have a book and you open it up and it's something that's used a lot for teaching, I mean, we are a, a, you know art museum embedded in a research university we bring artworks out on a regular basis. When we have a book um, of these remarkable prints that describe the horrors of war in graphic detail, um, the, you know, this, the, the book itself um, is vulnerable. And so you know, when, when Luis and Anna approached me to you know, think through whether or not we could do an exhibit of um, these prints that lived in a bound volume, um, it seemed like a perfect opportunity to look into how we might make these prints available. The spine was already failing, and we have an amazing conservation uh, 
you know, department here at the University of Iowa. And so we, you know, we devised strategies to make each of these prints available for exhibition. Um, it's, these works are really significant um, because of the ways in which it offers an unflinching view of the, the consequences of warfare. Um, these, you know, both, both Goya and Tolstoy are referring to this moment when Napoleon is advancing all across Euro Europe. This is the same moment where there's, there's this whole theory of the great man in history. Um, and both artists actively undermine that theory by the way they portray with unflinching um, truth and detail the consequences of the actions of great men without regard to what happens to the people who have to live their lives. Mm -hmm. So um, it was, you know, I, I felt like the exhibition itself offered an amazing opportunity um, to do tap into the wealth and the depth of the expertise of faculty on campus. It allowed us to tap the depth of expertise in our libraries. Um, and it, because it's the 150th anniversary of War and Peace, it also allowed us to embed our exhibition in a whole range of events that are taking place. Uh, and I think Anna can actually speak uh, <laughs> more about the events that are taking place in October. Sure. Well, I wonder, before we uh, go over to Annie, would you care to say anything about the prints themselves in terms of, uh, you know, um, well, for one thing, the fact that they were not published during yes, uh, Goya's lifetime? Yes, absolutely, yeah. So um, Goya was a court painter, which means, uh, you know, he was one of the most sought-after portraitists. Um, and he had a position within, the, you know, within circles that are incredibly, you know, powerful and wealthy, um, who were seeking out his paintings. So he had commission, you know, he, he served um, the powers that be, and he. So Goya was a, a person who had standing, had access to power, um, and he also had substantive support. That also meant that when you do a commission, your ability to speak truth is constrained. So especially in this period of the Peninsular Wars um, that begins in 1808 and goes on all the way into uh, 1814, um, and you have a series of, you know, it's a power struggle. You go from, you know, Spanish to French, Spanish to French several times, somehow, Goya is able to hang on to his court paint, you know, his position as court painter during all of these changes. It says a lot of things about him. He's an amazing painter. He's able to say, well, you want your portrait done and you want it done well, I can do that for you. Um, I don't really care who you are, but if you want to retain my services, you know, I can, I can help out. Um, but it also speaks to the fact that he was incredibly canny. Um, he knew what could be and could not be said, so to speak. Um, and, you know, the disasters of war, most of the prints were done during this pe period of conflict. They are graphic. It includes images of, you know, the French soldiers committing crimes. It also includes, uh, you know, images of Spanish uh, guerrillas committing crimes. Um, and 
you know, this is this is a, a set of um, images that he made during this incredibly volatile period, and he knew that he wouldn't have an audience for it during his life. The other thing to think about uh, in, in terms of this suite of prints is that Goya executed these works not as drawings, but as, you know, etched plates in preparation for, you know, a kind of legacy. Like, he imagined that there was going to be a future audience. And that future audience would best be best served not by singular individual images, but by a whole suite of, again, reproducible images that can spread, um, you know, this vision of the horrors of war and the horror, you know, the, the kind of graphic consequences of ill thought out action, you know. So the prints that we have is, I, I think, what's really remarkable uh, remarkable about the disasters of war is that it's an instance where an artist basically carves out their autonomy and does so by recognizing there is neither patron nor market um, for the works that he's producing and that he somehow continues to sustain a, you know, a, a, a kind of output that will find a market and sustenance, that there is this kind of interesting cleft and division, which is not to say that um, Goya never made um, you know, large-scale paintings that were an indictment of war, um, but they were very controversial during his lifetime, and they, couldn't, they too could not really have been shown until the 1860s. Thank you so much. Uh, so, so let's go to you then, Annie. And I wonder if you can just um, uh, continue on with something about this historical period. Obviously, one of the areas I know we're going to be turning to you for is the Tolstoy side of this picture and uh, the incursions into Russia. So maybe you can just tell us something about this period of the Napoleonic Wars. Right. Um, so the most important thing that I always tell my students is Tolstoy did not fight in the, in, in the Napoleonic Wars, but he did fight a Napoleon. And um, it's, it's very important to note that Tolstoy fought in the Crimean War against Napoleon III of the Second Empire. French history of the 19th century is extremely complicated. Um, what made um, Tolstoy's experience in the Crimean War so valuable is he acquired firsthand experience of what it means to be a person um, in a war zone. Um, he actually starts his career as a serious writer during this period when he writes his three Sevastopol sketches, where he describes the heroic defense of um, the city of Sevastopol by Russian soldiers at the time when Napoleon III of the Second Empire, um, along with Queen Victoria of um, Great Britain, allied with Turkey um, in this conflagration of the 1830, uh, sorry, 1850s um, in, um, in the Black Sea. Um, Tolstoy finishes his um, sketch um, entitled Sevastopol in May uh, with the following phrase, and I paraphrase, um, the hero that I love with all my heart, the hero who always was, is, and will be beautiful, is truth. And Tolstoy begins this process of truth-seeking, not only in his war chronicles, and he really serves as a war correspondent, one of the first war correspondents, uh, which makes him extremely 
uh, valuable for future war correspondents such as Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway actually considered Tolstoy Sevastopol's sketches to be his finest accomplishment and would travel with Tolstoy Sevastopol's sketches in his knapsack through the fronts of World War I and World War II. Um, but what makes Tolstoy so remarkable in his approach to the Napoleonic period is the fact that he wants to tell the story truthfully to the best of his ability in fictional form. And uh, what Joyce was saying about Goya, that Goya portrayed the great man of history, um, just Charles IV of Spain, um, he even painted a portrait of Wellington, um, who was hugely important in the liberation of Spain from, uh, from the French troops. Tolstoy um, is a hereditary count. He's a part of the Russian aristocracy. Um, he has um, um, friends and family members who are serving in the court in the 1860s. But his project is to show what happens to ordinary human beings at the time of conflagration and war. Um, when he's describing the Battle of Austerlitz, uh, which happened in 1805 on the first anniversary of Napoleon's coronation, he describes it from the point of view of military men. Um, and Andrei Balkonsky and um, General Kutuzov are two of the characters from whose point of view we see the Battle of Austerlitz. By the time we get to volume three, and uh, we are discussing the Battle of Baradino, the um, 1812 battle in Russia, we see the battle through the point of view of a civilian, Count Pierre Bezukhov, who uh, becomes an eyewitness to absolute horrors and atrocities. Um, 60,000 men died in one day on that battlefield. And so seeing the horrors of war through the eyes of someone who is unaware of the greater strategic importance and just sees the carnage and horror of that war is extremely important for Tolstoy. Also, he introduces us to all of these characters who cannot pray for death. Um, Natasha Rostova is the soul of the novel, and when she is, uh, she's invited to um, a church service um, at the beginning of the Napoleonic invasion, she prays fervently for the victory of the Russian soldiers, but she can't pray for the death of the French. Um, because she, she just feels that it is not in our human ability to pray for death. Um, later on in the novel, the same character, Pierre Bezuchov, is going to witness the atrocities committed by the French in uh, Moscow. And it's fascinating. Pierre is a person who has a hard time accepting the human condition. And he asks huge questions throughout the novel. And eventually, in the course of his musings about what it means to be a human being and what the purpose of life is, he comes, out, comes to the conclusion that uh, his purpose in life is to kill Napoleon. And he needs to get rid of Napoleon, and then everything will go back to normal. And as soon as, as, soon as com he comes to this realization, he puts on a peasant outfit. He decides to conceal himself, which is very hard because Pierre is enormous. <laughs> um, and as soon as he decides that killing Napoleon is his mission in life, he does three remarkable things. And those things are he saves the life of a French officer, Officer Rambal. Um, then he attempts to save um, an Armenian woman from assaulting um, French soldiers. And he saves a little girl from the fire. Um, and at, the, at, at that point, he's arrested by French authorities. It's the end of volume three of War and Peace. And they ask him, what are you doing? Why, why are you holding this child? And uh, Pierre tells us, she's my daughter whom I saved from the flames, which is remarkable because Pierre, this civilian who is trying to come to terms with the horrors of war, all of a sudden treats every burning child as his child and becomes sort of the, this enormous embodiment of Russia. Um, 
some of the prints um, that we see in Goya's Disasters of War could serve as illustrations to War and Peace. I would actually love to see a volume of War and Peace printed with Goya's illustrations. Um, a couple of the prints that are on display at the Ritchie Ballroom at the IMU show uh, French soldiers um, executing civilians um, tied to a post, and um, they are shooting at these people point blank. Um, there's a moment like that in Volume 4 of War and Peace when the French are executing um, civilians, and they're doing it inside of a convent, the New Maiden Convent in Moscow. Um, and um, Tolstoy tells us that even though they were following orders, they knew somewhere deep down that they were committing crimes. And it's fascinating that Tolstoy posits this question that will be the most important question that will be discussed um, after World War II during the Nuremberg trials. Uh, what does it mean to commit a crime? Um, a person who is following orders, are they committing a crime? And Tolstoy is asking this question over and over and over again in the course of War and Peace. Well, we thankfully we'll have you with us that also in our next segment where we'll really <coughs> look at some of the adaptations of War and Peace and, and the way different people have um, pulled elements of the story out to focus on. But uh, thank you. Uh, so, Denise, um, I wonder if you could sort of uh, not only tell us about this period in, in Spanish history of the Napoleonic Wars, the period when Goya was alive, but also what Goya has meant as a Spanish painter mm -hmm. and as uh, an important Spanish figure. Mm -hmm. Right, so as uh, Joyce has already, and, and Anna also mentioned that this was a period in Spanish history that there was a lot of turmoil, a lot of back and forth, a lot of political chaos and uncertainty. Um, well, Goya seemed to sort of manage to uh, sort of float above, as it were, in terms of sustaining his own career. You can also see in these particular etchings a certain uh, movement uh, in his artistic career toward more dark, more gritty and realistic. I think in many ways these etchings is sort of a um, moving toward those black paintings that Goya is very well known for, that he painted in approximately the last 10 years of his life. Those black paintings include this very striking image of Saturn eating his children, which my son saw at the age of four in the Prada Museum, and it really, I think <laughs> it resonates in his memory now. Um, um, but we also, honestly, may think of Goya as more of a playful painter, that he has done many cartoons for tapestries, showing these sort of idyllic natural scenes, uh, court uh, figures playing at being peasants in the countryside, and then of course his very famous double portrait of the dressed Maha, or dressed young woman, and the nude Maha, the naked young woman. If you're interested in Spanish history, there's a fantastic Netflix series called The Ministry of Time or El Ministerio del Tiempo, and there's an episode on the painting of the Maja Desnuda, the undressed Maja, um, which I think is very much worth watching. It's quite <laughs> fun and giving you a good sense of uh, what some of the court customs, the court practices, the games, for example, and some of the important personalities at the time during Goya's lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of his importance as a painter, um, uh, Goya in some ways is sort of like Velázquez, who is of course very well known for Las, uh, Las Meninas, right? The, that portrait of the a young 
royal daughter surrounded by her nursemaids with uh, Velázquez in the background. We're seeing from the point of view of the royal couple, the king and queen, who are being painted. You can see them only in the mirror in the very background of that painting. So Velázquez, whose work is, honestly, I would say perhaps far better known than Goya. However, Goya, tremendously productive. Um, there's more rooms in the Prada Museum devoted to the work of Goya than there are to the work of Velázquez and the tremendous breadth and uh, I would say residents of his work, which is part of what I have to say when I went to see the exhibit in the Stanley Museum. I was, I so appreciate the way these prints are exhibited. I feel like the way that they are being shown in our art museum is more effective than the way they are displayed in the Prada Museum for various reasons. Um, they are very, very accessible, very easy to see. You've got the, um, these are um, almost cartoonish images, each of which has a sort of subtitle. Mm -hmm. The subtitles are uh, printed, available on the sort of uh, cards beside the prints and translated to English to make them very accessible. They're organized somewhat thematically. The theme is not revealed, and so it really engages the viewer in looking at these groupings, trying to understand them, and the way this exhibit invites you to get involved. These are extremely accessible uh, art pieces of art. You do not have to know about who Goya is. You don't have to know about the Napoleonic Wars in Spain to engage with these and to really appreciate them, in part because these are the disasters of war. And there is a real specificity. There's a testimonial aspect to these. There's capturing the truth and the really sort of ugly truth of these horrors. But there's also a certain almost universal aspect to them. Um, I'm really impressed with how compassionate the gaze is on these victims of violence how they are fully human, and they're depicted as fully human, not stripped of their humanity despite the violence they've been subjected to. Even the bodies of dead soldiers that have been stripped of their clothing retain a certain humanity. Um, and maybe that humanity also means that these images are in some ways somewhat universal, as in these are very specific early 19th century Spanish, French figures in these works of art. But what we're seeing, these horrors, are horrors that you could see in any context of a civil war or an invasion, which is of course the case of the, these images that are being presented by Goya. That they are, um, I think, um, they are um, almost instantly recognizable, I would say. Um, these images sort of are precedents to uh, Picasso and Guernica. There's some very similar images that Picasso used to illustrate the horror of the bombing of that city in the, in the Basque country during the Civil War period in the 1930s. Um, but we can also um, think of these images as perhaps being relevant right now in Spain, where there's a lot of memory battles that are still being engaged in around 
the civil war of the 1930s around the dictatorship of Franco, the exhumation of mass graves is still going on in Spain, a certain reclamation of memory in Spain. But honestly, I think that these images could be almost equally applicable to illustrating the horrors of the Spanish conquest in the Americas, mm -hmm. right? That they are, um, the specificity does not mean that they are not also universal. They don't that they do capture this sort of fundamental humanity and the way that wars can bring out the worst, mm -hmm. but also how they can bring out the best. Mm -hmm. I'm especially impressed by a collection that focuses on women yeah. in war. Some of these women are victims, but many of them are resisting act, uh, actively, resisting um, a rapist, for example, or there's one fantastic print that shows a woman who is struggling to light a cannon surrounded by fallen dead soldiers. And so these women who are resisting actively and continuing to fight, you know, when all hope is gone, um, these are wonderful. I, 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 I hope everyone is able to get mm -hmm. to the Stanley Museum to see these stunning, yeah. stunning works of art. Here's another one. I, I saw the exhibition this afternoon, and there's another one that I think is very striking with a woman who's being held by a soldier, a man who uh, appears to be ready to attack her in every way. And there's an old woman, maybe her mother, coming at the soldier with a, a pike or a knife or, or something. Yeah. And, Me you know, yeah. and it's very, they're small images. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you see facial expressions, mm -hmm. you see desperation. Mm -hmm. um, May, Wait, I, like may I add one more mm -hmm. thing? Um, Denise mentioned the Saturn eating his children that is yeah. at the Prado, mm -hmm. the Goya. And it's fascinating to what extent this project, the Disasters of War, and Tolstoy's project is discussing to what extent the powers that be eat up the young during yeah. times of conflict, because Tolstoy continuously talks about the fact that these generals are sending tens of thousands of men to die for their personal vindication. They had the idea that this is going to work out, and they are sending ten of tens of thousands of boys into battle, knowing full well mm -hmm. that the carnage is going to be overwhelming, but they would like to have uh, the righteousness, the self-righteousness mm -hmm. of their decisions validated. Mm -hmm. And um, there's actually a print in special collections. Um, that the special collections exhibit is the second part of this exhibit. And the print is entitled, They Do Not Agree. Um, it depicts two military commanders sitting on horseback talking to each other, while in the background there is horrendous carnage happening. So these two cannot agree on how to proceed at the same time as this machine, the Saturn of this world, is mowing down young people by tens of thousands, and these people are not going to come back. Um, and these ideas, um, these grandiose ideas of tactics and strategy on the battlefield um, are causing just untold human suffering. I want to underscore that the curation and um, the sort of conceptual scaffolding for both exhibitions um, at the Stanley Museum of Art and also at Special Collections, you know, this really came from the work that the real experts and the professors, um, Luis and Anna, uh, brought to bear on this material the kind of the, the conceptual groupings that you see at the Stanley Museum of Art was something that um, Luis, really, uh, Luis Martin Estudillo really worked out um, in, in looking very carefully at our amazing set, of, you know, full set of prints. And um, the presentation with the print drawers 
uh, in special collections in and the list uh, and the uh, the quotes from Tolstoy were incredibly thoughtfully um, selected by Anna Barker. So this is an exhibition that really can only take place in the context of a research university with such depths of expertise. And the production of these exhibitions would not have been possible, first of all, without our amazing um, preparatorial staff, but also without the, you know, without the, the work that conservation did. And I know we'll talk about conservation on the third part of our conversation, but um, I just want to underscore that this was a fully collaborative effort, and I think it really highlights the ways in which we work together um, in an in a ecosystem. So, mm -hmm. uh, Anna, I, it would be a good time perhaps to ask you about some of the other, uh, some of the things people can see around mm -hmm. town and, and um, some of the talks that will be given. Right. So, um, we are going to read War and Peace out loud. Congratulations, Iowa City community. We are doing it the second time around because my students told me that reading that novel out loud once is not as cool as reading it out loud twice. So <laughs> um, every single reading slot is gone. It's astonishing. I have 160 people who signed up to read War and Peace. Um, <laughs> this incredible feat is going to be accomplished between um, September 30th and October fourth right here on the Ped Mall um, by the fountain. I'm coming back to my original reading location. This is where I read 10 years ago when I got started with these public readings. It was Anna Karenina in 2010 when we commemorated the one 100th anniversary of Tolstoy's death. Um, and because War and Peace is just such an incredibly complex book that keeps um, having reverberations culturally um, throughout the the 20th century and the 19th century. Uh, we will talk a, a little bit more um, during our second segment about um, the project, um, the collaborative project with Film Scene, who is bringing War and Peace, the Russian um, eight-hour classic to Film Scene, um, uh, starting on the last day of the book festival, um, October um, 6. Um, and, um, um and then the opera? And the opera, yes. The opera will be, uh, there is an opera based on War and Peace. I always tell my students that every single uh, great work of Russian literature has to have an opera based on <laughs> it, from Eugene Onegin to the Queen of Spades. Um, Anna Karenina has a ballet dedicated to it. Um, uh, Boris Godunov, the Pushkin drama, has uh, an opera based on it. So yes, uh, even Gogol's The Nose has an opera based on it. So the opera War and Peace is going to be screened um, at the music school on October um, 15th. It's a Tuesday, and all of my students are required to attend. <laughs> I also wanted to add to that event, uh, Luis Martin Studio is going to be back in the States and he's going to give a talk at the Stanley Museum of Art. Um, I don't have the date right off the top of my head, but if you look on our website and uh, look under Smart Talks, you'll find it there. Um, but it will be a wonderful opportunity to really plumb the depths of his expertise because he's actually preparing some serious new uh, research on this material. Well. I can't thank you enough for getting us going on this evening's conversation. Thank you so much to Celios, Anna Barker, and Joyce Tsai. Uh, and I hope all of you will stay with us for part two of the discussion on art in the face of war, when our guests will take us inside the film and operatic treatments of epic tales such as War and Peace. Uh, World Canvas programming is available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website. I'm Joan Kerr, and for UI International Programs, thank you for joining us.
Hello and welcome to Rogue Campus from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City and thank you for joining us. This program is called Art and the Face of War and we're focusing on two influential artists, Spanish painter and printmaker Francisco de Goya and Russian writer Leo Tolstoy. They are two very different people working in different artistic media, separated by time and space, but somehow connected by the expression they gave to the horrors of war. Our guests in this segment of Royal Canvas will help us see this traumatic period, the Napoleonic incursions into Spain and Russia through both the original works and through film and operatic interpretations. Uh, here to give us their insights are Anna Barker, visiting assistant professor in the UI Department of Asian and Slavic Languages and Literature. Thanks, Annie. Uh, next to her is Rebecca Fons, the programming director at Iowa City's film scene. Hi. Thanks for being here, Rebecca. Thank you. And at the far end, we have associate professor in the UI School of Music, Nathan Platt. Very good to have you back with us, Nathan. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, people who are with us for the first segment already know a little bit about why these two artists are connected in terms of our discussion tonight. Um, Annie, you've been teaching War and Peace for many years, both to UI students, and I know this fall you're also teaching at the senior college. What is it about War and Peace that continues to inspire you and also captivate other readers 150 years after it was first published? Um, it's, a, it's the toughest question to answer. I'm actually teaching War and Peace in my undergrad class on Tuesday nights and senior college on Wednesday afternoons. And this is my 15th and 16th time teaching War and Peace. And it never ceases to amaze me. It is a novel. Um, I teach other books. I teach all <laughs> the novels of Dostoevsky every year. I teach um, Milton. I teach Goethe. I teach Bulgakov. Um, I teach Herodotus in my Wonder Woman class. So there are <laughs> other, other writers who are extremely appealing to me. But there's something about War and Peace that is absolutely um, unimaginably beautiful. And um, Tolstoy's seeking in that novel is what brings me back to that novel over and over and over again. He doesn't give us answers, but he shows us characters who are walking through life and wondering what the meaning of it all is. And these characters happen to attempt to come to terms with, with what it means to be a human being at the time of tremendous turmoil. Um, every time I go back to the novel, and I'm listening to it in Russian every time I'm preparing for my next um, presentation, um, I'm just absolutely astonished by, one, the beauty of Tolstoy's Russian. Two, the extent of his research and how incredibly meticulous he is. Two, uh, three, by, by the power of his convictions. He really wants us to know how he feels about um, this period, and he brings so much of his own um, philosophical and, and, and theological thinking to this novel. Um, and four, just the incredible beauty of the relationship of these characters. And I, I confess to my students that um, I still weep when I um, come to contact with certain episodes in this novel because they're just so incredibly human and so incredibly unbearable. Um, and then once the character departs us in the novel, I miss them uh, because they become just such an integral part of our lives. And um, the, the novel is about young people. The novel is about older people who have perhaps come to terms with what it means to be a human being. My young student readers of this novel are absolutely blown away that they emote um, and, and they feel so close to these characters, um, despite the fact that they are young people growing up in the United States in the 21st century, and they 
feel empathy for characters who were created by a Russian aristocrat 150 years mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. um, it is truly astounding. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think we have a rare opportunity too to get a little extra insight from you regarding Tolstoy and his own life. I know that you have visited more than once his, uh, the ancestral home and mm -hmm. so on. Um, tell us something about what that's like. Um, what you need to know about Tolstoy is um, he, his collected works in Russian on the shelves of the University of Iowa Library are 90 volumes, 9-0, and he's a college dropout. So <laughs> twi twice <laughs> he, uh, he, didn't, he didn't finish his first year as a student of Oriental Languages at the Kazan University, so he thought, well, jurisprudence should be easier, and that didn't work out either. <laughs> at the ripe old age of 19, he comes into his inheritance, and he moves to the ancestral estate, the Yasna Palana, um, and continues making mistake after mistake all through his 20s. Um, and in the, the kid had an absolutely disastrous life in his teens and 20s. Um, remarkable thing is um, he pulls it all together in his early 30s, gets married at 34, and starts writing this novel immediately as soon as his life stabilizes. So the astonishing thing about War and Peace is it was written by a young man in his 30s. Tolstoy is 41 when he finished the novel, and he lived another 40, 41 years in the shadow of this accomplishment. Um, as Tolstoy's view about um, life and... Um, um, aesthetics change in, in his 50s and 60s, he becomes a complete pacifist and a Christian anarchist who doesn't believe in the power of the state over a human being. Um, he doesn't believe in uh, the power of armies to wage war at people. He doesn't believe in the power of the state to wage war on an individual. Um, he, um, he is completely against capital punishment. And what horrifies him the most is the complicity of the official church in um, atrocities against human beings. And um, he becomes so heretical in his Orthodox teachings that he's excommunicated by the Russian Orthodox Church at the ripe old age of 72. Um, but inadvertently, he starts an entire movement of young people who believed in his teachings to the point where they would start Tolstoyan communes. Mm -hmm. And remarkably, one of those Tolstoyan communes was started by the young Gandhi when he was a lawyer in South Africa. He read Tolstoy's The Kingdom of Heaven is Within You, and he was so moved by Tolstoy's appeal for nonviolent protest that he wrote a letter to Tolstoy. Tolstoy corresponded with him during the last year of his life, and, um, well, the rest is history. The nonviolent movement mm -hmm. um, begins with, um, with Gandhi, and then uh, we have reverberations of that happening in the United States with Mar Martin Luther King. Um, so Tolstoy had an incredible impact on... Um, on future generations of thinkers and philosophers. Um, and it's fascinating that this human being who wrote the most warlike novel in Russian history, uh, War and Peace, already in that novel starts speaking as a person who does not approve of violence, who um, cannot stand violence of one human being against another human being. And the best characters that Tolstoy creates in this novel um, do not want to condone violence. Uh, Natasha cannot pray for the death of the French soldiers. She can pray for Russian victory, but she cannot pray for death. Um, Nikolai, her brother, um, his hand falters when he's ready to strike um, a, um, a French soldier with his saber because he sees the young French soldier's eyes, and he realizes that there's fear in those eyes, and he realizes, so this is war. I am afraid, but he's afraid too. 
Um, and Tolstoy's project um, lasts throughout his lifetime. Um, he is a war veteran. He fought in the Crimean War um, in the 1850s. He begins his literary life as a war correspondent with the Sevastopol sketches. So he definitely can speak from personal experience about the horrors of war. But that takes him all the way into his old age and into this um, resistance to violence that has to be peaceful. And um, out of the New Testament, the only, um, the only part of the New Testament that he, um, he can live with is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, well, uh, one of the things we want to talk about is some film versions mm -hmm. of War and Peace, and I guess some you might consider successful, some perhaps not so much so, but but we really want to concentrate on this film that will be shown soon mm -hmm. at the film scene. Um, you told me earlier, 2019 is the 50th anniversary of the first Russian film Oscar mm -hmm. for uh, War and Peace mm -hmm. by Bandarchuk, mm -hmm. Sergei mm -hmm. Bandarchuk. Mm -hmm. um, you probably um, noticed that there are several adaptations of War and Peace. They just keep keep churning them out. Uh, the latest one is with Lily James. Um, there's one from, I think, the 80s. Um, and um, then um, the, the US actually made the first big successful adaptation of War and Peace. It was made in, um, I believe, 1956 with Audrey Hepburn as Natasha. And she became such a successful Natasha that when Bondarchuk was casting actresses for Natasha in the Russian adaptation, he was looking for an actress who would remotely look like Audrey Hepburn. Um, <laughs> and he succeeded. Um, Saverlieva was a, a, a very young ballerina. He actually wanted to have an actress who would have no acting experience because he wanted um, a, a woman who would portray the immediacy of Natasha on, on the screen. Um, Bandarchuk was the director of the film, the producer of the film. He played the main character, Pierre. He was a screenplay writer and the narrator. <laughs> um, it was a monumental effort, and um, the Russians restored this film for the 50th anniversary of its production. It was produced through the um, 1960s, and um, in 1969, it got the Oscar for Best Foreign Film. Um, the new restoration is absolutely spectacular, and I can't wait to see it. Um, it was actually screened at Lincoln Center, and the New York Times gave it an absolutely glowing review. It called it peerless. Um, and part of the success of this film is that there was no budget limit for this film. Anything the director wanted, he got. If he needed tens of thousands of soldiers in Napoleonic uniforms, he got them. If he needed war horses, he got them. If he needed uh, porcelain, 18th century French porcelain from archives um, in Russian museums, um, he got absolutely everything that he asked for this film. Um, and it's fascinating, the actor who played Andre became such an iconic Andre that this um, War and Peace recording that I'm listening to, the reader actually speaks the lines of Andre with the voice of the actor who played Andre in War and Peace. And he speaks the lines of Pierre with Bandarchuk's voice. So um, they became sort of the iconic Andre, Pierre, and Natasha. Hmm. So that leads us directly to you, Rebecca, because film scene uh, will be showing yes. this film. Yes, uh, wear comfortable clothing. It's over seven hours long. <laughs> uh, I uh, give Anna much credit because uh, last year during the UNESCO Book Festival, uh, they were celebrating Frankenstein, and uh, it was very easy for us to present uh, Bride of Frankenstein and Frankenstein. They're you know fifty minutes. That we did a double feature. It was very simple and. The, I don't think the credits had even rolled, and um, Anna said, uh, next year we've got to do <laughs> War and Peace. It's seven plus hours long, but we have to do it. Um, <laughs> and 
film scene is expanding uh, actually as we speak to a second location, and so that really frees up a screen for us to be able to do that. So on October 6th, uh, we're presenting all four chapters of War and Peace, uh, which is seven plus hours long. We have built-in breaks for the bathroom and for more popcorn. W and if you bring in a sandwich, we will not kick you out. I think we'll <laughs> allow that. Um, and then the, the subsequent the days after that, you can sort of pick and choose which chapters mm -hmm. you want to see or see a chapter on Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, and it is, I mean, I, I, I think the New York Times review that you commented, they called it peerless. I mean, it is truly beautiful and Criterion Collection, who is the gold standard in restorations and, and um, uh, new exhibition, uh, did this restoration, and it is truly beautiful. Uh, the music, the, the imagery is so crisp and clean, um, and it's really something to be seen on the big screen. I think, you know, we get used to watching things on Netflix or on our computers at home, but this is one of those that at home, it, it's a, it is a challenging watch. I mean, seven plus hours is a big commitment for anybody, um, but to see it on the big screen and to feel the, the bass rumble because there's just amazing sound mixing, uh, the, there's sort of every film technique in the book. There's sort of chaotic editing. There's um, interesting cuts. There's whimsy. There's um, it, it's a lot. And so to see it on the big screen is really how it meant to be seen. And I imagine how, how Sergey would hope. I mean, it took, like you said, it, I think it's something like in today's U.S. dollars that they they say at the budget was $700 million, you know, he had <laughs> t hundreds of thousands of extras, real soldiers, pieces of, of arts, uh, of art and artifacts. Uh, and so I think he, we should do him justice by mm -hmm. seeing it on the big screen. <laughs> we can, we, if we can do that one thing, that's what we should do. Yeah, well, and then maybe you can both talk a little bit about um, how this particular filmmaker has, has told the story. Um, because I think that there has been some success with uh, versions of War and Peace where maybe they concentrate on a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. um, but is this different? Do they follow, does he follow the novel essentially straight through? He follows the novel all through. So, um, and this will be the, the lead, uh, lead in to the opera. The opera doesn't begin till the beginning of volume two. Um, Prokofia really felt that if we're not going to sit through an eight-hour opera, we have to cut somewhere. So the opera begins at the beginning of volume two. Bandarchuk just does the entire film in four parts, and it's fascinating how he divides the parts and he gives titles to the parts. So the first part is called Andrei Balkonsky, um, because volume one of War and Peace is where we see the development of Andrei. Volume two is called Natasha Rostova, because volume two is hugely important for Natasha's development. Volume three is, um, or part three of the film is 1812, and that is where we are presented with the Napoleonic invasion and uh, the Battle of Baradino. And then volume four, uh, or part four of the film, is entitled um, um, Pierre Bezuzov, uh, because that is the most important novel for the development of this character. Um, I have to say that last time I've seen this film in a movie theater, I was a teenager. Uh, we had to read all a warm piece um, for our Russian literature class in um, ninth or tenth grade, and our teacher arranged for all of us to see the entire film in a movie theater. And um, I remember sobbing um, through m many many of the parts. Um, so after reading Warm Peace out loud on the Pad Mall, I will be ready to just relax and enjoy the the entire eight hour spectacular. I can't wait to see the restored version. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll it'll look really beautiful. I, I have only ever seen it on a computer, so I'm really excited. And I definitely paused it and sort of lost my way and forgot where I was. So I'm, I will be committing to the Sunday screening as well. I'm really yes. excited. And I think there's something to be said. Th this adaptation is really spectacular and, and different critics have commented about how uh, Bondarchuk didn't really, he, he has control over the film. And I think a lot of times when filmmakers are adapting 
big tomes or even just a beloved novel, there's sort of this uh, fight between the original text and adaptation, or they sort of lose their way on that. Um, there, it's topical, but it just came out last week, and it's a, fil uh, a film called The Goldfinch, based on the Donna Tartt book, and it's sort of received bad reviews because it's sort of too faithful, but not faithful enough. It just doesn't really quite work, and that's an 800-page book, Fulcher Prize winner. Um, and then, of course, there's Gone with the Wind, which is different in a lot of ways than, than the, the source novel. But um, I think this adaptation is really, it's his own story, but it is, I think, for those who love the novel, really find that it, it is an appropriate adaptation and probably the best. The uh, King Vidor, 1956, Audrey Hepburn and uh, Peter Fonda as Pierre uh, is was um, too small. Too small, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, is you know, it, 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 there's a reason that it is not as um, uh, revered as the Boner Chuck version, and I think it's because the, his version just really feels like um, there's sort of Tolstoy speaking through him, but he's also bringing his own uh, voice. And I, I did write down a quote from the late great uh, Roger Ebert, who said. Boner truck is able to balance the spectacular, the human, and the intellectual, mm -hmm. which I think is a praise that any any filmmaker would want to receive. Terrific, terrific. Well, so now we go to the opera by Prokofiev, and Nathan Platt from the School of Music is going to tell us uh, something about this work and the various um, versions of it that were produced over the years. Sure. I, if it's all right, I'd actually like to just put in another plug for the film because yeah. I've been watching it <laughs> and I study film music, so I've been listening to it. And um, the music by Vyacheslav of Chinnikov is just incredible. Um, and, and let me be a little bit more specific. Um, oftentimes when we watch epic films, we expect that no matter where the characters go, no matter how many years elapse, that there will be certain musical themes that sort of follow them. Think of Gone with the Wind or Lawrence of Arabia or Lord of the Rings. Um, and these themes that we sort of come to know and become these sort of uh, threads of continuity. Um, Ovchinnikov is like completely to toss that aside, and again, it might be a reflection of the budget and a sort of like, do whatever you want, do whatever you can. <laughs> um, but there are so many musical styles represented in that film that makes it musically interesting, but then also the um, way in which the music is mic'd is really fascinating. And so you have certain scenes where the musicians sound as though they are like sitting right next to you in the theater. You can hear the flautists breathing. And then there's other ones where the orchestra is just wailing away, but the, the, the distance of, of, the, of the miking and then also the handling, the mix, it sounds like they're playing in like the next room over or something. It's very disorienting and fascinating. And so if you do sign up for that film, please, please bend an ear to the soundtrack. It's really interesting. <laughs> um, with Prokofiev and the opera, um, there's a lot of things that are, that are uh, I think, of, of, of note with this project. Um, I mean, I, we could just sort of start with the fact of, of making an opera based on a literary uh, a source novel. Um, you have, of course, the, the process of setting something for the stage, but then setting it to music. And uh, as Anna already uh, acknowledged, setting all of War and Peace to music would take, you know, <laughs> weeks to perform. And so there's something that happens in, in most operatic adaptations of literary works of, of condensation, of extreme condensation or, or, or selection. We can't do all of this, so we're only going to do very specific parts of it. So the opera very much becomes a dialogue with the text of not just what is there, but what isn't there. And then the sort of balancing uh, um, 
force for that is that opera expands what is there because just logistically speaking, it takes longer to sing something if you're singing it in a comprehensible fashion than to say. And so scenes that pass in a couple of paragraphs or pages in Tolstoy's novel unfold much more, at a much more leisurely pace in Prokofiev's opera. So you, you are invited to have sort of a different relationship with the characters in these limited select scenes that you that that Prokofiev is is sort of treating you to, and then of course you have the orchestral score sort of um, narrating around what the characters are 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 singing to each other, and so that's th that in some ways is obvious. That's what opera does, but it it sort of forces a very very different relationship with Tolstoy's um, novel that is interesting. Um, there's a lot that is uh, unusual about the biographical and historical circumstances of this opera. So Prokofiev started working on it at just as World War II was essentially beginning and made it his number one priority after Hitler violated the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact by invading Russia in June of 1941. And one of the things that um, the Russian government did, the Soviet government did for artists of uh, Prokofiev's stature is they got them out of large cities where they might be at risk. And so while Prokofiev's working on the libretto with Mira Mendelssohn and beginning to compose this music, he is in this sort of series of um, uh, internal uh, evacuations. He's first evacuated out of Moscow and then from his second location to a third, he ends up in Georgia. Um, uh, eventually, but I, I often wonder what that would feel like to be on the one hand such a such a national treasure that your government is swooping in and, and taking you out of sort of harm's way, and yet also knowing that there's millions of other people that they're not doing that for. And um, he would arrive with train, you know, by train, usually with other artists, and there would often be uh, people there, sometimes brass bands, you know, welcoming them because here come these 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 celebrities that don't normally grace, grace uh, us with their presence. And so I, I just, uh, I think about that, I think, wow, what a, what a sort of emotionally tumultuous time. On the one hand, you know, the world is falling apart, your country is under attack, and you are being singled out for this special treatment and, and sort of praise. And, and then there's a sort of like, well, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> and so he starts working on this, this opera um, that is also just, hap you know, by coincidence, uh, a great Russian novel about uh, another invasion of, 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 of Russia by a Western power. Um, and so uh, he's working on it, and one of the problems with opera in the Soviet Union is it was the most tightly censored and controlled musical format that you could work in because it has a story, characters, and, and lines of sung dialogue, and it's very easy for a censor to sort of swoop in and say, you know, I don't like how this character sort of says this, or you know, this this sort of casts um, uh, this casts the Russian people or the Soviet people in a, in an unflattering light. We think you should change this. And so, writing uh, opera and getting it approved and performed in the Soviet Union was not not simple. Um, Prokofiev believed that he had a more or less a, a, a sure thing with war and peace because it was war and peace. What could you what what could possibly be objectionable? objectionable about that. Um, the problem had to do with uh, General Kutuzov, um, who in Tolstoy's novel is a very human, 
if you want to say flawed, but, but um, I, I mean, I suppose flawed would be a, an appropriate word, but just a very human, not a great general in the sense of capital G great, a, just a, a person who's trying to do what he can with the limited uh, uh, facilities that he has and the sort of the, the strength of the Russian people, the, the strength of, 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 of the country is really what wins the day, um, not him being a stupendous general. Um, but the censors were thinking, well, Kutuzov needs to look like Stalin. And right now, the image that we're pushing of Stalin is that he is a great man, capital G, capital M, and that Kutuzov, on, in this stage uh, presentation, needs to look similarly, and people need to sort of um, also sort of perceive that and, and, give, and give this character this particular level of respect. And so this is really where the opera sort of... Um, uh, it's a major stumbling block because Prokofiev's, uh, I think, interest in the work really had to do with a lot of the the the, the intimate scenes uh, between Natasha and Andre and um, <coughs> uh, Pierre, and he was sort of constantly stymied by the fact that they were saying, "We don't like how you're handling the second part of the opera, where he really focuses on uh, Kutuzov's um, role within the military campaign." And so the 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 sort of <laughs> Uh, Joan mentioned that there are many versions of this because basically they would say, no, this isn't good enough. You need to go back and try it again. And Prokofiev, you know, bless his heart, kept doing that because he really wanted this work to be on the stage as a, both a, a, an, an expression of patriotism and also because he had spent years of his life at this point, you know, investing, invested in this. Um, and although parts of it were performed... Uh, either for committees or in reduced stagings. Um, the complete work was never performed in his lifetime. It was actually performed in Florence uh, several months after his death. Um, and people who know about Prokofiev know that Prokofiev died on the exact same day as Stalin, <laughs> um, which is a very, very bizarre, you know, uh, historical uh, coincidence. Um, and so that could that sort of sounds like a sad story because here's this work that he spent all of his time uh, in, born of a very personal moment within his own biography. Um, but the opera has been sort of remarkably resilient uh, over the 20th century and now even in the 21st century. Um, uh, Valery Gergiev, who's a quite famous Russian uh, uh, conductor, um, essentially cut his teeth on this work. It was his it was his premier performance with the Kirov now Marayinsky. Uh, theater uh, orchestra. That was the first work that he that he um, uh, conducted with them, and has since gone on to make that that opera house uh, sort of an international phenomenon. Um, and as recently as 2010, there was a new version of well, a new old version of the opera unveiled that essentially tried to restore the opera to the way that Prokofiev had originally written it before all of the. Um, uh, Soviet committees sort of started jumping on it and say, well, what if you change this note? What if you pull this out? And so it's interesting that in 2019, it's actually much easier to uh, experience uh, this work in its ver various versions than it was at any point during Prokofiev's life and really for the past uh, 70 years. Yeah, and so the uh, film that the School of Music will be showing uh, is which version? Is it <laughs> well, th our, pla our plan is to do the one with Valery Gergiev uh -huh. and uh -huh. Kurov from the Great. early 90s. And it's also fascinating that um, those of you who are opera fans, you probably know Anna Nikrapko, the great <laughs> Russian opera soprano. She starts her career as Natasha in uh, 
in uh, in War and Peace. That yeah. is that is her first big role. Yes. Um, just to add um, to what Nathan was saying, um, it's fascinating. You need to know something about um, how Russians speak about the War of 1812 and World War II. They don't call them the War of 1812 and the uh, World War II. In Russian, the War of 1812 is called the Patriotic War of 1812, and World War II is called the Great Patriotic War. So there's a connection between these two conflicts where, um, as Nathan pointed out, it was a Western invasion by mostly French forces of Russia in 1812, and it was a Western invasion of mostly German but allied European forces of Russia in 1941. Um, it's fascinating that Napoleon marched into Russia with an army of 600,000, and he marched out of Russia with an army of 60,000. Um, and it's fascinating, it wasn't the Russian cold that killed him. By the time he gets to the Battle of Borodino, a few months after his invasion, he has only 250,000 troops. It was disease, it was um, starvation, and it was desertion um, that scattered Napoleonic troops even before they got to Moscow. And um, um, his supply lines were stretched too thin. It was 600 miles to his supply trains when he entered Moscow. Um, at the time of the German invasion, of Wehrmacht invasion of um, the Soviet Union in 1941, when Prokofiev starts writing this opera, it was an army of three million people. It was the largest invasion in human history. And Russians lost 28 million people in that conflict. So for Prokofiev to be writing this opera at this time is just this monumental personal challenge, but also a monumental national challenge. And it's fascinating how in the opera, the, the themes of the characters um, start merging at one point when we get about to um, three quarters through, <laughs> through, the, through the novel, the theme of Kutuzov, the general, merges with the theme of the people. Um, and it's fascinating that there's a, um, a, a, a paragraph in War and Peace where um, Kutuzov is told about what's happening on the battlefield. And he doesn't believe uh, one of his generals. He says that um, what he sees in his soul is more important than a general who saw the battlefield is reporting. And uh, what, what Kutuzov sees in the novel is what is in every Russian soldier. And this, this um, common soldier's aspiration towards victory is what drives um, people on the battlefield, not necessarily the orders given by commanders. And so in that sense, um, Prokofiev's rendition um, becomes incredibly moving. Um, mm -hmm. And um, every time I listen to the opera, um, I'm just tremendously moved. Um, when this happens, when all of a sudden the character of Kutuzov starts associating with the characters of the soldiers. And there's one moment that is beautifully portrayed in the opera, and it is in volume three of War and Peace, when a holy icon that was rescued from a burning city is brought to the battlefield before the Battle of Borodino, and all of the soldiers come to kneel in front of the icon and pray, and Kutuzov comes to the icon as well, and all of the generals come to the icon. So the spiritual aspect of... Um, the opera is very much so the spiritual aspect of the novel, and it's beautifully portrayed. Wow, it's such an interesting discussion. Well, I, I want, before we wrap up, I want to turn to you, Rebecca, and give you a moment to just uh, talk about film scenes, very big events happening here, yes. starting in about I a half an hour. Yes, I had dust on myself <laughs> because I was cleaning before I came over. Uh, yes, yeah, so film scene, which is located at the Ped Mall, we are expanding to a second location in the Chauncey Building. We literally have a uh, champagne toast this evening. Um, and then we open tomorrow with Downton Abbey and some other classic films like Cinema Paradiso, Field of Dreams. Obviously, you can't 
open a movie theater in Iowa without <laughs> showing Field of Dreams. Uh, and then one of my favorites, The Blob, which has a classic movie theater uh, scene in it. Uh, no spoilers, but The Blob <laughs> is involved, obviously. Uh, so it's exciting for us for many reasons, uh, sort of more awareness of, of who we are as a nonprofit art house cinema, uh, but also it just means we will have five screens uh, total, and that means we're able to do things like show seven hours of a 50-year-old <laughs> war and peace adaptation um, and do other partnerships, which are so important to us. So it's very exciting, and uh, the new building is beautiful, and it sounds and looks amazing. It's probably going to be one of the best cinemas uh, in any direction, five miles driving, I think. So and that's something we're really <laughs> proud of, and Iowa City should be very proud of that as well because it is a is a momentous moment for us and for cinema in the Midwest. That's so. great. That's yeah. great. So that was uh, October 6th is going to be the seven-hour run yes, through. Yes, Sunday, the October 6th. Uh, mm -hmm. Film scene is the entire marathon if you want to mm -hmm. do it. Uh, and then that Monday through Thursday, mm -hmm. uh, there are individual chapters. Uh, on the Sunday screening, uh, Anna will be doing introduction, which mm -hmm. I think will provide a lot of context for people. Um, and then she'll also be returning for an introduction on one of those individual days. Uh, icfilmscene.org is our website. All of that is online and tickets are on sale now. And we may have a sellout on our hands. We kind of mm -hmm. didn't know how many people would show up for seven hours, but it's looking pretty pretty solid. And that right. way, if any of you haven't seen the book, you can sort of say you've, or you haven't read the book, which is sort of a cheat. <laughs> you know, they always say the book is better than the movie, but some people think the movie's better than the book. So this'll, this gives you an excuse to learn a, a little bit more. And who knows, perhaps you will watch the film and then you will feel like, mm, you know, a 55-hour novel is just just your thing to do yes. this winter. Yes, <laughs> you may really be a long-haul art consumer. So yeah, there yeah. you go, yeah. there you go. <laughs> and October 15th for the showing of the uh, of War and Peace uh, right. operatic film. So wonderful. So, Anna Barker, Rebecca Fons, and Nathan Platt, thank you so much for being here. It's a wonderful conversation. And for all of you, I hope you can join us for part three of our program where we're going to be talk to, talking to uh, Joyce Sy once again, the curator at the Museum of Art, and also to um, one of the conservators who worked on these um, precious disasters of war. So, uh, World Canvas Programming is available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website. I'm Joan Kerr, and for UI International Programs, Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City, and thank you for being here. This program is called Art and the Face of War, and we're focusing on the works of two influential artists, Spanish painter and printmaker Francisco de Goya and Russian writer Leo Tolstoy. Having heard a lot about the disasters of war by Goya and War and Peace by Tolstoy earlier in the program, we're going to spend some time now talking about how museums, libraries, and holders of fragile and priceless items work with conservators, conservators to protect them from the ravages of time. Uh, once again, we have Joyce Sai at the far end here, uh, chief curator of the University of Iowa Stanley Museum of Art and associate professor of practice in the School of Art and Art History. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you. And uh, just next to me is Elizabeth Stone. May I call you Beth? Yes. Uh -huh. Assistant Conservator at the UI Libraries. Uh, glad to have you both here. And, and I'm going to start with you, Beth. And uh, 
first to ask you about your role as a conservator. What exactly is the work you do? Sure, uh, a conservator is a person who deals with the physical preservation of a cultural object. Typically, a conservator will focus in a specialty, so a very specific medium. Uh, mine is books. Other conservators deal with paintings, uh, wood, metals, a lot of different objects, ethnographic materials. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, obviously, you work at UI Libraries. There are mm -hmm. a lot of books there, a lot of uh, very special and precious items in the special collections. Um, do you... Uh, uh, is there, how do you assign priorities to the works that need to be, uh, have conservators' attention? Yeah, the priorities, um, they're done by a lot of different people at the institution. So within the libraries, we work with curators from uh, Special Collections, the Iowa Women's Archive, the John Martin Rare Book Room, which is in the Hardin Library. Mm -hmm. Um, and also the university archives. And so we sit down with them, we have a conversation about what gets used in classes. So that's always a very high priority. Um, if there have been researchers who uh, have indicated that they have a, a, a collection that they're really interested in coming and seeing or if things have ticked up recently. Uh, also, um, digitization projects mm -hmm. are always high on the list as well and mm -hmm. that is Something that uh, we're always looking to make, you know, make collections that are uh, accessible for people who can't physically come to the library. Um, a, a few years ago, we had a large digitization project that uh, took three years to complete, um, and all of that work. It was 150 scrapbooks, and th that all came through. Uh, the conservation department first. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Joyce mentioned in the first segment that the binding on the uh, the collection of disasters of war was one of the things that had suffered the the, the way the book was held together. Um, tell us what it looks like when it's kind of in a mess and you know you need to do something. Sure, uh, the binding actually is in the exhibition in special collections right now, so you can go and check it out. When uh, Joyce's predecessor. Kathy Edwards came and talked to uh, Giselle Simone and I about the two volumes. Uh, we looked at both of those volumes and uh, one was in a 20th century binding. It was already rebound, but it was pretty sound. So a student could come in and leaf through that book. Um, everything was in place and the, the, the paper was intact. So we decided, you know, Unless it gets further damage, that might be a good one to keep in place. The other volume was bound in leather. Um, we were unsure at that time if it was an original binding or not. That's often something that you, it, it can be difficult to tell. Um, you can make a very good guess about it. And often with notes from uh, the curators, uh, you can sort of trace back if that is an original binding. So the problem with the specific binding is that uh, the, the sewing had just kind of fallen apart, it had failed. And so a lot of the individual sheets were loose. Mm. And um, so corners get damaged that way, things get out of order, um, which is less of a concern <laughs> for the Goya's prints. Uh, they're numbered, but it's also, but it's a, a concern um, usually in our work. Um, and so we decided that at that point it was a good idea to disbind uh, the volume. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And then uh, I take it you have put the volume back to, to get, or you will after this exhibition? So there was a conversation um, with, the, with the curators and what they wanted to do. Um, so typically in a library setting, uh, it's very important to us to uh, present that in a book form mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. um, and or preserve as much of its bookishness as possible. Um, but Joyce can speak to this a little bit sure. too. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, again, um, I, f first of all, I just want to start off by saying that the work in this exhibition would not have been possible without the groundbreaking work that Kathy Edwards did as curator before me. Uh, she was the chief curator, and she also has a real depth of expertise as um, a, a printmaker and also had, uh, she, she has a, a real depth of expertise in print. And so she was the one who really built out this relationship with conservation in um, the libraries. And so, you know, the unit that uh, Beth works in um, has been really important in conserving several really important artworks, mm -hmm. um, including works by Piranesi, Hayter, I mean, foundational figures in the history of printmaking. And, you know, we have two. Um, volume, so we have two um, disasters of war uh, bound volumes. They, they have the, they share the same, you know, prints. Um, and so because we have one that is already bound and can be presented in teaching settings as a book, um, with this, uh, with this project, from you know my perspective as a curator and also as a person who teaches with the collection, um, and also wants to mount exhibitions of the future, the fact that the binding had failed on this edition gave us a wonderful opportunity to work with the library, to for, you know, and and also work with you know professors on campus. As I mentioned, Luis Martinez Studio is actually publishing on and working on a project on Goya. Um, and so, you know, I was able to draw upon this amazing wealth of expertise that's shared across the, you know, institution. Um, and so when we were looking at it and also considering not only did the conservators, you know, take apart the binding, but they also treated things, um, they cleaned things, uh, you know, you can talk about that in a, in a sec, but ultimately the decision to let the prints remain um, loose, I mean, they're not really loose, they're all, um, you know, put in mats. Um, and mats, if you're not familiar with what mats are, it's a kind of hard backing, it's like a hard board, and then you have the print, and then you have a, basically a paper frame. Um, the reason you, why you would want to do that is that when you put it in that kind of housing, it's not only easy to exhibit, but if you're trying to make these things accessible, it protects the print. So it makes it easier to show individual prints um, from this series, um, and it also allows us to put the stuff on the walls. So it's, it, it's really, it's a really super exciting opportunity. Um, not many museums have a full run of it, and not many museums have a full run of it, and also can show with it. Um, so it, it's extraordinary, and all of that is because of the legacy that um, I, I feel like I'm building upon. Um, it, this, these were also prints that were a part of a gift from the Elliots, 
who of course were the reason why the Museum of Art was uh, initially built in the 19 uh, in uh, 1969 um, and so you know there's there's a lot of things to celebrate mm -hmm. um, with the preservation and the presentation of these works mm -hmm. Well, I, uh, this is jumping ahead a little bit. I know the museum won't, the new museum won't be standing sure. for another two years. Yep. Uh, but would you expect that the Goya prints would be in some level of permanent display? Yeah, so I wouldn't say permanent mm -hmm. um, because uh, paper is vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, it's light sensitive. So if you put something, if you put a work on paper on permanent display, you know, it... Uh, not great things will happen to it. But mm -hmm. uh, we do have um, print drawers. So for example, in the special collections, the presentation there, we opted to use these print drawers where we can put um, a selection, and we have a selection of eight prints mm -hmm. in that print drawer, um, where you know you can pull it out, look at it, and then you know it's, it's away from the light. Um, so there are a lot of uh, opportunities for us to show um, the, war, the, the disasters of war, but we don't just have the disasters of war, we also have the capriccios. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we have a lot of Goyas in our collection, um, but even if they're not on the walls and if, even if they're not in the, you know, various galleries, because we're going to be swapping it out, and I, I do anticipate that Goya is going to be a part of that mm -hmm. inaugural story, but um, even if these works are not actively on view we have a student uh, we have um, a classroom on the third floor in the new building um, that'll be opening in uh, the middle of 2022 where we can continue the work of bringing these prints out um, and talking to students from in classes not only in art and art history but as you know tonight's program has shown this is something of relevance for music for literature for you know, politics, history, so on and so forth. So this really can be a resource for departments across um, campus. And uh, so it, it's really, mm -hmm. all of it is really exciting. And I suspect this is a very nice for you folks at the library to know that the museum will be just, uh, you know, just a few steps away so that the work you do in partnership can um, happen even more easily than it did when the museum was across the river. Yes, much easier. Mm -hmm. it, it's funny, it, that physical space isn't really far on a map, mm -hmm. but um, you know, planning to get, to get over there to assess works of art, uh, it, mm -hmm. even moving stuff between buildings, it mm -hmm. takes a little time and care, and so having that proximity will be very useful. And as a matter of fact, Joyce and I have already you know, talked a little bit about the types of things going forward. Uh, the library has just acquired the Sackner Archive, um, which is very exciting, and I think that there's going to be a lot of um, collaboration on that um, collection in the future for both institutions. We bring really different um, sets of expertise and different perspectives to bear on objects in our care. And so, you know, there are things in the library collection that are more art-like <laughs> yes. than you would expect, you know. Mm -hmm. So we think of the library being a repository for books, but they, you know, the Sackner collection has these really beautiful prints, amazing objects, um, the Fluxus collection, the Dada collection. I mean, 
In uh, 2018, I mounted uh, the Dada Futures exhibition with Tim Scheip um, and uh, Jennifer Buckley and Stephen Voice. So that too was a collaborative project, but we featured you know, the things that were coming out of the Dada and Fluxus collections, including you know, a wooden box with a piece of latex over it and you're supposed to stick your finger into it. Now, if that was in an art museum collection, yeah, you're not gonna stick your finger into it, you know? Um, and, but like, because this is an object that lives in special collections in a library, there are considerations of quote unquote use that, you know, book conservators have to think about. Um, that, you know, actually paper conservators have a slightly different approach to it. Um, so, you know, I feel like I've learned a whole lot about um, the ways in which objects um, are used, uh, preserved, and what preservation means in the two different contexts, in a circulating collection and a non-circulating context. What would be uh, an example of some of the uh, perhaps repair work you'd have to do on, uh, I, I don't know if there's any of this involved in the, um, Disasters of War collection, whether any of the papers were torn or had become dirty or whatever. But with any of the paper-based works mm -hmm. you've worked on, what are, what are some of the fragilities? Um, a lot of the basic cleaning is actually done with basically special brushes and special erasers, mm -hmm. sponge-like objects. Uh, that was definitely done dry cleaning mm -hmm. through those objects to get rid of any surface dirt. Uh, there's, we call it mending, um, which is taking a thin sheet of tissue um, and sort of, it's kind of like a Band-Aid. Mm -hmm. um, you're applying a wheat starch-based paste um, in order to fix any tears in that paper. There was a little bit of that uh, to the disaster series, mm -hmm. although that series was really the, the sheets themselves, the plates themselves, they were beautiful um, and needed very little cleaning um, and they had very little uh, damage mm -hmm. to them. Um, what was surprising in in the work that we, the treatment that we completed for the, the disasters, uh, we don't perform a lot of disc binding um, in the library collection. So when we do get to disc bind something, there's a lot of documentation. There's a lot of documentation in all the work that we do, um, but there's a lot of um, sort of mapping how it was sewn mm -hmm. um, and then mapping things like were there other papers applied to it before and so we start to piece together sort of the history of this item um, and we can use our notes from just mm -hmm. finding it along with the notes that the museum already had um, and sort of confirm things that they knew or suspected mm -hmm. um, and there was, for instance, um, one plate that was bound out of order, and so when we took it apart, we noted that, and mm -hmm. that was indeed the case. Um, and then we, uh, there was also a, another paper that was inserted in this to complete the set that was a slightly different paper, slightly different size, and slightly, slightly different weight, which might sound really boring to everyone listening, but that was a really <laughs> exciting find mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. um, and then, in order for these, you know, when a print is made, it is a single sheet, um, and the ink is applied to a piece of metal and printed onto that. So in a book, you have signatures, um, which are several papers folded together, and so you sew it through 
um, the middle sort of folded edge. Mm -hmm. So when you have a single sheet, a bunch of single sheets, you have mm -hmm. to make a way to produce that folded edge. Mm -hmm. So we, when I was looking at those, we call them guards, when we were looking at those papers, um, we discovered there was several layers. Uh, we discovered there were sewing stations that were um, extra. And so we're trying to figure out like what, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Does this mean that this is a second binding? Does mm -hmm. it mean that um, maybe they miscalculated and then they cut new holes? We're not, mm -hmm. not exactly mm -hmm. sure what happened. Um, another sort of fun find for a bookbinder when disbinding this was um, the material that was used to strengthen the spine, um, usually that is a type of paper or a very specific thin cloth. Uh, but what was in the disasters was a very decorative, um, very thick, kind of like what would be used, a fabric on very nice curtains. Mm. Um, and it was thick and beautiful and the colors were, were great. And so that was kind of unusual and, and that's also something I'm not sure what that means. Mm -hmm. um, but those are yeah. some of the fun things that happen sure, when sure. you get into a project like that for sort of, you know, book nerds. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's very interesting. Uh, what do we know about how the Elliots came across this, these two sets of, uh, do, do we know uh, yeah, when they, they bought mean, them and? I don't, uh, I, I don't recall off the top of my head mm -hmm. when they bought them, but they were avid collectors mm -hmm. of prints and um, they also collected Goya very extensively. Mm -hmm. And um, not just any Goyas, but like exquisite Goyas. As yeah. As you pointed out, I mean, uh, you know, they're they're not only very f little long limbs the these uh, the the set that we are showing, but um, you know, it's actually printed on extremely high quality paper. So, um, it, you know, we it's referred to as a deluxe edition. Hmm. So, um, you know, that's this is I, I think that's really quite significant. Yeah. Is so. is there? Do we know what year? Uh, yes, ex this is this is from uh, the first edition, the first which edition is from 1863. 68, 63. Um, and 1863, it was uh, so the plates were held within the family, um, and Goya's son sold the plates to the academy, and the the Royal Academy is where Goya served as the director in Madrid, and so you know when these plates were bought. Um, they uh, were actually initially missing two plates, so uh, it became complete a few years, or, or you know, it, it had to become complete. But it was published in '63 um, by the Royal Academy, and there's a couple of things to think about too, just in terms of the timing of the publication. So there was a initial first edition. There was 500, and then there was four, uh, no, three subsequent printings, and the last one took place in 1937. Mm -hmm. 1937 is a really significant year in Spanish history and the history of um, the Second World War and also you know, the, Sp the Spanish Civil War. So this was, a, it, at a, it was published, Disasters of War, there was a special run um, that was published um, you know, in the midst of um, you know, the siege of Madrid and this was published in the midst of, you know, the bombings, the not, you know, the Luftwaffe bombings of Spanish cities. This was published the same year that P Picasso painted Guernica, you know. 
the, the fact that objects um, are reintroduced to a kind of cultural landscape, the timing of it, um, the, the kind of motivations of it, also reveal the ways in which um, institutions that are tasked with holding onto the reposit, these objects, that these objects are not quiet, <laughs> that the, their kind of latent powers are activated um, in very specific historical moments. Um, and I and I think it's it, it's something you know looking at these works now in our moment um, I think has been really important um, and and you know the other thing is like we are able to view these works um, because we have these institutions that preserve care for um, interpret and present mm -hmm. um, and I think we're very lucky to have that in our community. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I think so too. Um, just going to special collections for just a moment, um, the range of works you have, go, uh, go back how far? Um, oh, I should know this, but yeah. trivia. Um, yeah. We have um, a large, not a lot, uh, we have a, a pretty wide selection of uh, medieval manuscripts. Right. Um, but we definitely have things that are older than that. We also have, um, uh, you know, a lot of material from the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think of what we're working mm -hmm. on right now mm -hmm. in the lab, which can range from um, there. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier there was uh, these 150 scrapbooks that we yeah. did for an um, NEH project, and there's one in the lab right now. It's the Keith all the uh, vaudeville theater collection. Um, so that's a 20th century scrapbook, which is a very different treatment process mm -hmm. and feeling than some of the mm -hmm. medieval manuscripts we get. Uh, we also have some um, uh, unusual formats, so things like palm leaf books, mm -hmm. um, and those are really fun to take mm -hmm. a look at. Mm. And so if a class of students were to come in yeah. and, and uh, professor wants to show them, say, a medieval uh, manuscript or mm -hmm. one of the little small um, prayer books or something. Mm -hmm. Can students actually touch them, or are the the materials are handled by the professional assistant? So this is uh, you know one of the things that Joyce pointed out, which is use is a big um, criteria when we're thinking about treating things mm -hmm. in the lab, and that's because in special collections, which is a closed stack, which means you have to request it, mm -hmm. and a librarian will bring that material out to you, but you can touch it. So mm -hmm. you can sit there with the book or the single sheet um, or the object, and you can leaf through that book with your fingers, um, which is a pretty amazing mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. 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 It, it's really astounding. I mean, just the, the ways in which you can really interact with the object and hold it. I mean, it's, you know, these are objects um, that oftentimes are intended to be held. And, yeah. you know, in the museum, we have a different set of standards. Um, and, you know, some of those standards have to do with just the preservation and care and, like, I mean, to be crass, insurance, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't subject, um, you know, the kind of artworks in our collection to that kind of wear and tear. Um, but this is also why, you know, the, the preservation department is so crucial for a library. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I also, I want to underscore, however, that we, we do make our collections accessible and usable. Uh, it's just, no, I, got, I got a handle. 
it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you can look at it, um, and you're welcome to come in. And uh, you know, you can also, if you are teaching or if you're researching, um, if you want to see, you know, anything in our collection, we're just really an email away, um, and we have an amazing um, team who will work to make that material available for you to study and to look at. Um, we do uh, curated presentations of artworks for classes, again, across um, disciplines. Uh, we do that already now um, in the space that we have on the third floor of the IMU, the Stanley Visual Classroom. Um, but we'll be able to do that all the better um, in the new building, so. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much for telling us about this process. and, and uh, it's very, very beautiful work what you've done so far, so thank you. Um, so obviously we've been talking to Joyce Sai and Beth Stone, and I uh, thank you for being here with us. I thank all of you for listening this afternoon, and uh, I hope that if you have the opportunity, you'll join us on October 9th when we'll have another program in this room, same time. And uh, that program will focus on research, uh, research into space, cancer recovery, and precision weather forecasts. And uh, I think it'll be a really interesting conversation. World Canvas programming is available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website. So I'm Joan Kerr, and for UI International Programs, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.